Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. If you haven't heard the name Pete Buttigieg yet, it's only a matter of time. The 36-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana, has led a revival of the old manufacturing hub, turning it into an exciting, innovative city that is actually growing for the first time in years. Mayor Pete, as he's known, is a graduate of Harvard, a Rhodes Scholar, and a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy. He's also the first openly gay executive official in Indiana state history. Last year, Mayor Pete declared his candidacy for chair of the Democratic National Committee. And though he ultimately withdrew just before the votes were cast, he received high praise from party leaders for his focus on the future. The sky seems to be the limit for Mayor Pete, as many people talk of the 2020 presidential election as a time when America's mayors will move to the forefront of the national political stage. He recently joined a group of mayors from across the United States on Project Interchange, an educational institute of AJC that brings leaders from around the world to Israel to learn more about the country, to meet with Israeli politicians, business people, and educational innovators, and to meet with Palestinian leaders as well. Mayor Pete joins us today to share what he learned on Project Interchange, to discuss his party's future, and to discuss the future of Israel in the United States. Mayor Pete, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Glad to be with you. I have a little bit of a background in city government, and I know just how much the public servants who help our cities thrive fall in love with their cities. So maybe just as we start, you can give us a taste of that. Tell us what's to love about South Bend. (laughs) Sure. So South Bend is a community that's really experiencing an interesting transformation right now. We really grew up as an auto manufacturing city. We're known largely because the University of Notre Dame is here, but we were very much a company town for Studebaker when that was a major car company uh, and a number of other automotive uh, suppliers, many of which went out of business in the 1960s. And so like a lot of parts of the industrial Midwest, we went through a really challenging uh, number of decades uh, working out what our economic future was going to be. But right now we're growing again. In fact, we just got Uh, the numbers on a fifth straight year of population growth. And it's happening because we're uh, applying more and more of the knowledge economy to create jobs here, uh, figuring out how to uh, bring our manufacturing sector into the 21st century, uh, and finding a lot of people really wanting to live in the heart of the city again. It's a beautiful place. We've got a river running through it. It's very livable. And uh, we're really enjoying uh, doing everything we can to, to power the comeback here in South Bend. I think a lot of Americans are unhappy with the federal government right now. Is this a moment for local government to shine? Very much so. I think the more uh, partisan and ideological and sometimes paralyzed the state and and, uh, capitals and and capital in D.C. become, uh, the more we can get done at the local level. And I think people are really looking uh, for local problem solvers. So it's uh, led, among other things, to... Uh, an increasingly strong national and even global community of mayors, which is a great place to uh, swap ideas, compare notes, and and even join forces on issues from from climate change to uh, wastewater management. Well, as you mentioned, South Bend is known in many ways for Notre Dame for its Catholics. Are there many Jews in South Bend? 
There is actually a, a really robust uh, Jewish community here. There's a Hebrew Orthodox community. There's a, uh, a Reform temple that I can see right out the window of my office and, uh, and a conservative uh, group as well. So they've uh, contributed a lot to the life of the city. And uh, uh, we have a Jewish federation that's been very active here, too. And is that why you were interested in traveling to Israel with us? Yeah, that was that was probably what uh, uh, what sealed the deal. I'd always, of course, been curious and, and interested in a chance to visit. But when the local Jewish Federation reached out and, and uh, let me know uh, how special this opportunity was, I thought, uh, you know, uh, now's the time. I got to see this for myself. Did you learn anything in Israel that you feel can be helpful to South Bend that you've brought back or are planning to bring back to your city? Yeah, very much so. You know, Tel Aviv in particular has a really vibrant civic innovation scene. And so uh, we've already been in touch with uh, one of the startups uh, that's there, a company called Zen City, that's doing very interesting work with social media analysis to benefit cities and and working with a lot of mayors around the world. Uh, We met the deputy mayor uh, in Tel Aviv, who uh, uh, had a lot of observations and and, uh, notes that have gotten me thinking. Um, And only a mayor probably could geek out on this sort of thing, but uh, <laughs> the visit to the wastewater treatment facility in Dime Ridge, that was actually one of the most interesting parts of the trip for us. Obviously, uh, you know, Israel has a great reputation for water technology, and if you're a mayor, dealing with water is a uh, big part of your job. Delivering it, removing it, rearranging it, <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty important stuff. So uh, I was glad to get some, uh, some ideas and, and see some of uh, how it's done over there. I can only imagine. I think when people think about government executives, they think of, you know, big city halls or government buildings. But if the water doesn't come on when you turn on the faucet or if the garbage doesn't get picked up, that's uh, that's a great way to run afoul of a city. It is. I mean, it's one of the reasons that you don't see some of the nonsense uh, of national politics at the local level. We, We can't uh, shut down local government over an ideological disagreement because then uh, there wouldn't be water and, and you need water to live. So uh, we, we find a way to get it done. Uh, we have to. And we're always on the lookout for ways to get it done more efficiently, more cost effectively, and more successfully for our residents because that's what they expect of us. From a political perspective or a conflict-oriented perspective, was there something that you saw or heard in Israel when you were there in person finally for the first time that was particularly illuminating or something that really resonated with you? There are a few things that that, uh, just look different once you have a chance to see for yourself. One of them, I know it's often mentioned, but it bears repeating as as somebody who was visiting for my first time, is understanding just how compact the region is Mm -hmm. uh, and seeing how close, uh, you know, even in Tel Aviv, how close you are to the Syria border, um, how close you are to to Lebanon, uh, really to to all of the um, uh, borders in a challenging neighborhood. Uh, That was pretty eye-opening. Um, I also really appreciated that, that we understood that there's a real range of, uh, of, of views and, and opinions uh, within Israeli society and, um, and within the Israeli political space. And I think it's important to understand that because so often uh, some of these issues are portrayed as, uh, as if every group is, is monolithic. And, uh, you know, we, we know that our own communities and our own cities aren't that way. It was really helpful to see directly that uh, the same was uh, was true in, in Israeli society and among the, the leaders that we had a chance to meet. Now, you were there with this delegation of mayors that we brought as rockets were falling on Israel from Syria. That's not something that happens in South Bend. What was that like for you? 
You know, it was certainly striking. We we were planning uh, the next day to head up to to the uh, Golan Heights and near the Syria border. Obviously, turned out not to be uh, the best day to do that. So uh, <laughs> so we adjusted our plans. But it was a reminder of how real and uh, how live a lot of these issues are. And at the same time, uh, you also had a sense that this was not uh, causing society to grind to a halt. Uh, everybody was uh, obviously watching the news very closely as this. Uh, a confrontation over the Syria border happened, but you know, it didn't stop people from living their lives. And I actually think there's a lesson to be learned from that uh, for America, which uh, unfortunately uh, probably has not had our last experience with uh, with terrorism or with violence, and needs to learn how to prevent uh, uh, terrorists from uh, succeeding in their goal of becoming our top priority uh, by seizing our attention. So. You know, seeing the way that uh, that a country can be, uh, on one hand, very uh, intentional, very serious, and very effective when it comes to security, and on the other hand, not allow concerns about security to to dominate your consciousness. Uh, I think there's a very important lesson in that that uh, that hopefully Americans can look to as as we think about how to navigate a world that's uh, uh, unfortunately in some ways become smaller and, and more dangerous for all of us. There probably weren't too many moments in Israel that reminded you of your time in Afghanistan, but maybe those kinds of threats were brought you back there. Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, checking checking on when the next rocket attack might come was something I, I got used to when I was at, uh, at Bagram or in Kabul, uh, and so understanding that. But of course, that that was a very different context. I was in uniform. We we knew that we were in a war zone. Um, it, you know, this is a case where I was in a very modern city, surrounded by people going about their lives, and uh, seeing how people fit those things together was was illuminating and, and in many ways moving. There is something incredible. You're right. I felt it many times about how this is a conflict that has gone on for so long, and yet you don't feel like you're in a war zone in Israel. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a sense there that no matter what challenges there are in the community or in, in the society, uh, um, they, they can't wait for uh, security issues to be resolved. So uh, people live their lives. Um, they're pretty clear-eyed about what's going on around them. Uh, and at the same time, you you don't let that take over. I think uh, all of us on some level have to learn to do that. But the immediacy of it uh, and the way that uh, Israelis have, have found uh, approaches to, to push through that um, and, and the sense that, you know, we were in a very uh, safe and very peaceful place. Uh, you know, some of the numbers that we've been shown on uh, violence of any kind in, in many of the cities we visited, uh, you look at Jerusalem, uh, whether you're looking at political violence or petty crime, uh, you know, those statistics would frankly be the envy of a lot of American Midwestern cities and some of our own challenges with, with gun violence and, and other issues. Is that what you would want Americans to understand about Israel? Is there something else that you bring home that you wish more Americans understood? You know, I think certainly just understanding the, the complexity and, and nuance of the issues, also understanding the, the level of modernity there. Uh, again, you know, it was very different in different regions. Uh, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv are very different cities with very different styles. Um, each of which was was compelling for different reasons. But obviously, as, as a bit of a civic innovation geek, uh, somebody's <laughs> really interested in seeing how uh, urban forms of living are developing and also how technology affects society. Uh, really impressive to see how Tel Aviv has uh, coped with, uh, with a lot of growth, uh, has maintained a, a level of, uh, I think, social cohesion, uh, and has integrated technologies. I mean, just, uh, again, not to geek out too much as a as a mayor, but the way they took the ID card, turned it into a mobile application, and have used that as a way to make sure that people get access to information and services, uh, very much in line with what a lot of American mayors hope to do uh, with moving our 311 systems. 
uh, online. So uh, just, I think, an understanding of that, because so often, you know, you, you only see uh, coverage of international tension. Uh, you only see what's uh, what's maybe going on with, with the prime minister and the Palestinian Authority, and, and you're not seeing nearly enough, I think, uh, about just the energy, the dynamism, uh, the creativity, the innovation uh, that's happening uh, at the local level, and, and how some of that's also uh, feeding up into the national context in a positive way. Speaking of national contexts, some guy named Barack Obama has referred to you as the future of the Democratic Party, which I'd imagine is quite the heady thing to hear. So I'd love to hear from you a little bit about the party's future. I think of American Jews in many ways as inverse Mormons. Nothing against <laughs> nothing against Mormons, but they tend to vote 70%, 80% for Republicans, and American Jews tend to vote 70%, 80% for Democrats. So even as they loyally vote Dem, many Americans American Jews are worried that as the party is moving leftward, it's growing more antagonistic toward Israel. Do you think that's a legitimate concern? Yeah, we talked about this uh, over there, especially with uh, some of the diplomats from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I think there is a risk that uh, support for Israel could come to be regarded as a partisan issue, and I think that would be uh, that would be really unfortunate. And uh, you know, there there are different accounts of, of how that happened. I think. Uh, you know, in, in many ways, there have been things that have happened in, in both parties uh, in the last 10 years or so that have contributed to that. But, uh, you know, one of the first things you realize when you get on the ground is that this is not a left versus right issue. At least it shouldn't be. Uh, we met a lot of people from the Israeli left who had complicated and, and nuanced views about what's going on, but were also uh, very convincing in, in their account of, of why uh, many of the decisions that had been made uh, were the way they were in, in Israel, and also uh, I think a, a richer understanding of um, what was going on in terms of the relationship with Iran. Uh, unfortunately, these things are, are reduced into um, black and white uh, picture. I, I think a lot of the time in um, in the American media, and, and sometimes by our own political leadership. Um, but you know, the Democratic Party is, I think, uh, ultimately committed to uh, the idea of peace and security and stability. And fairness for everybody, and uh, I don't think that uh, has to automatically uh, put you on on one side or the other of a divide, uh, especially when you look at how seriously all of those issues are taken um, by the uh, Israeli counterparts that we met when we visited. You mentioned the rising partisanship around Israel, which is something that deeply concerns us here at AJC. How do we avoid that partisanship, or I guess it's here already? So how do we de-escalate from that? Well, I think engagement is very important. So uh, part of it is just the uh, things like project interchange and the chance to make sure that uh, leaders and and uh, and figures from within both parties have a chance to get uh, on the ground uh, and in, in a balanced way. Um, you know, making sure that um, uh, as as this trip made sure of uh, that we saw what was going on in the West Bank as well. That, that we were able to meet with a range of people uh, so that it didn't feel like we were uh, being asked to hear only. Uh, one kind of party line. Uh, I think that's very important. I think also uh, having a, a more nuanced understanding of what's happening on the Palestinian side. So, uh, you know, one of the first things that was very clear to us was the extent to which uh, uh, there really is not a, a unified or, or single voice um, for the Palestinian Authority. And uh, I don't think most people, or for, I should say for the Palestinian people, uh, most people aren't aware of the difference between what's happening in Gaza uh, run by Hamas uh, in a way that, that is contributing to uh, a lot of misery there, but also uh, totally different 
uh, than an environment where you would have a negotiating partner across the table um, is really important. I don't think that's that's widely understood. And I, I think if it were, uh, you would see more Democrats maybe uh, asking more questions uh, as we face these kind of, uh, you know, 90-second cable news versions of, of what's going on over there. Do you think Republicans understand Israel better? Do Dems have to go to school on Israel? You know, I think actually the Republican uh, complex of attitudes on Israel is complicated, too, because mm-hmm. uh, the the evangelical embrace of sure. the Israeli right is maybe not the same thing as uh, an authentic <laughs> commitment to the well-being of the Israeli people uh, or the Jewish people. Uh, so I don't know that, that either party's got it right. I know that you know, the current administration is, is certainly... Um, uh, aligning itself with the Israeli right and, and making some sweeping gestures that uh, that may well move public opinion to some extent, but uh, I'm not so sure that they're uh, serious or committed to peace. And the, the thing that, that you take away more than anything is that uh, you know, that's, that's what everybody wants, uh, especially those in the region. And uh, those who seem to have the most clear-cut answers and the most strident opinions uh, seem to be the ones who are on the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that the trip was so valuable. And, you know, the, uh, the AGC promised that we would leave with more questions than answers. Uh, and that, that promise was kept. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, that's just not the style of American politics at the moment. Uh, it's going to have to be, though, if, if we're going to figure out how America as an ally uh, and as a partner can still uh, also be a broker for peace here. Uh, you know, American credibility in terms of being able to be helpful and be a meaningful uh interlocutor for multiple uh, players and parties in the Middle East, that's an important thing that we have to contribute. And if we begin to look like our partisan politics have aligned with sides uh, in the Middle East, that that's really bad, uh, not only, I think, for uh, all concerned in the region, but also for any credibility we would have as an honest broker. I think you're right that there's more reflection that takes place among the Israeli society than there is among kind of the most stridently pro-Israel voices in America. More reflection about what they can do to improve Jewish and Arab relations within Israel, what they can do to improve the situation of the Palestinians. I think a lot of those conversations are often seen as even, frankly, beyond the pale here among, again, these loudest pro-Israel voices in America, whereas in Israel, that's a healthy conversation that's going on. Yeah, I think so. And I think also, uh, you know, in a way, because people, uh, many people we met in Israel um, had very specific and, and direct understanding of anti-Semitism, especially European anti-Semitism. Um, as a result, they were actually uh, much less uh, quick to confuse uh, political debate about uh, what choices the Israeli government should make and actual anti-Semitism, which is unfortunately on the rise Uh, globally and and, uh, probably in the United States as well. You mentioned the importance of the United States role as peace broker in the region, and that's what we all want to see for sure. But what should the United States role be in supporting Israel as one of its closest allied nations? You know, we saw towards the end of the Obama administration, the president sign the largest memorandum of understanding providing military support for Israel of, you know, any president in history. Is that what it boils down to ultimately? Is the military alliance, is there more that the U.S. could or should be doing? Yeah, I think that the security and intelligence cooperation is is obviously vital. It's something that uh, you know I, I also had some exposure to uh, when I was in the military, and uh, by its nature, some of it happens out of public view. But 
uh, certainly something that, that uh, is important for American interests as, as well as Israeli interests. Uh, I think also there may be some opportunities, perhaps not under the present administration at the moment, but over time, um, to be a constructive voice in uh, inducing some of the other players in the region to accept greater responsibility. You think, for example, about uh, the Egyptian role when it comes to the situation in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you think about some of the leverage that the U.S. has uh, over Egypt. Yeah. Um, so before you even get to the Iran issue and what's going on with some of the Gulf states, uh, there's certainly, I think, uh, a chance for the U.S. to uh, exert influence and, and be a constructive player uh, when it comes to uh, a lot of states in the region that, uh, frankly, just haven't uh, lived up to their responsibilities. Now, Mayor Pete, we've all heard the rumors, and we all know that the Democratic Party is looking for a new leader. I'd like to give you a chance to make history here. No one (laughs) has ever declared their candidacy on the AJC Passport podcast, but it's only a matter of time, right? Do you want to make any headlines today? Uh, as tempted as I am to, uh, <laughs> uh, to make news on this podcast, it's, it's probably not quite the right moment for that. But uh, uh, what I will say is, you know, we're living in a moment where uh, there are a lot of different voices emerging in the party. And, and that's a good thing. A vacuum can be a little bit scary, but uh, it can also be very productive. And I think what you're seeing is, as we move through this season of special elections and primary elections is uh, the, the time for lamenting that our party doesn't have a bench has clearly come to an end. The number of people who are stepping up at every level, really good, really talented people who I think are going to amount to a new generation of leadership, it's great. And uh, being a part of that in some way, uh, as I feel I've uh, I've been able to do, uh, you know, already from uh, from right here in South Bend, um, it's definitely a very motivating and and very inspiring thing. And and it's also flattering to know that the South Bend story has gotten a lot of attention because I think it's a story that hopefully a lot of other cities can, can look to as well. Well, Mayor Pete, whatever you do decide, we here at AJC as a 501c3 not-for-profit organization look forward to neither endorsing nor opposing you. Uh, (laughs) I'll look forward to that as well. And we also look forward to many years of friendship. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I've uh, really enjoyed this opportunity and really appreciate everything that you do. Now, from South Bend, we travel about 7,000 miles south to Santiago, Chile, where the Jewish community is facing a unique challenge. Anti-Semitism stemming from the largest population of Palestinians anywhere outside the Middle East. Joining us now is Stephanie Giloff, Deputy Director of AJC's Belfer Institute for Latino and Latin American Affairs. Born and raised in Chile and advocating for the Jewish people across the Spanish-speaking world, Stephanie is an incredible resource and a true expert on these issues. Good morning, Stephanie. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephanie, for having me. Stephanie, you are from Chile, so you have a better understanding than most of our listeners about what the Chilean Jewish community is like. Can you give us a quick background on Chile's Jews? How old is the community? How large is it? Where did they come from? You're absolutely right. I was born and raised in Chile. I only came to the United States when I got my master's degree. And um, the Jewish community, it's fairly small. If you think in terms of percentages, you have a community of about 20,000 people in a general population of about 18, 19 million people. So if you see, it's really a small community in comparison to, to the larger population. 
people think that because we're in Chile, the community is mainly um, Sephardic. But in truth, about 70% of the community is Ashkenazi, meaning that it's from uh, Europe, from um, Russia. And there are Jewish schools, there are Jewish institutions. It's, uh, it dates from uh, the 19th century and on. You have really well-known um, Jewish personalities in the public eye. I don't know if you know Don Francisco from Sábalos Gigantes. He's a Chilean Jew, um, and this is just to name one. So you have a well-established Jewish community, and um, people don't tend to leave. In, in fact, I would say that I happen to be an exception to the rule. In Chile, the Jewish community has a good life, and if you are leaving, it's not because you feel persecuted or because of lack of opportunities. You tend to stay. And unfortunately, there's another very influential community that we're also talking about today, and that's the Palestinian community in Chile. What can you tell us about them? The Palestinian community, I started my presentation about Jews saying that we're about 20,000. The Palestinian community, it's the largest uh, Palestinian diaspora outside of the Middle East. We're talking about 400,000, 500,000 people. And I was just on the phone yesterday with my mother, and I was asking her about her recollection. And she was telling me how when she was growing up, she was also born in Chile. Um, when she was growing up, she remembers the community, the Jewish community and the Palestinian community growing side by side and coexisting side by side, and even collaborating as they were developing their different businesses. These were two communities that got along. Unfortunately, that's not the case anymore. You have a growing younger membership, especially within the Palestinian Federation and the Palestinian Federation of Students, that have become much more vocal in their position towards Israel. And in doing so, they have carried um, part of the civil society in having much more um, extremist positions and in unfortunately importing a conflict that is happening thousands of kilometers away. So Chile, instead of being an example of cooperation, collaboration, coexistence, has become part of the of the trenches. And that's where, especially in Latin America and mainly in Latin America, that's where part of this conflict is is unraveling. Wow. So the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is playing out now in the streets of Santiago. Is this something that's crossing the line into anti-Semitism? Unfortunately, it's, it's bordering anti-Semitism. You're absolutely right. This is something that happens every day. There are certain messages that you are seeing that for the one who understands, you see that there is a similarity and that the messaging in itself, it's about the same. Just yesterday, I got this um, picture that was circulating about this sign in one of the main streets in Santiago, the capital of Chile, that said, the only thing Israel learned about the Holocaust is how to kill people. Wow. I asked, and this has already been covered, but the fact that was there, the fact that thousands of people who commute on that street every day were able to see it 
what kind of message are you sending? Stephanie, I have a student who I've worked with in the past. We actually, we were in Paris together on a lobby mission at UNESCO, the United Nations Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, a Chilean student named Jorge Testa. Jorge is a student in law school in Chile, and I understand that he has actually been at the epicenter of some of these issues. Can you tell us Jorge's story? Absolutely. And just so that you know, for full disclosure, we are relatives. (laughs) There's a joke that I'm a relative with every Jew in the Chilean Jewish community, but this one is a fact. Well, you have a a good family. (laughs) I have a very large family. (laughs) So what happened with Jorge is that the General Union of Palestinian Students that I've mentioned before, they launched this campaign to boycott his candidacy. Jorge was part of a socialist list, and he was... um, being elected for a position in the student council. And as the Union of Palestinian Students explained, uh, Testa's candidacy was unacceptable because he was Jewish and he supported Israel. Uh, fortunately, the socialist group that was Testa's, Jorge's group, they refused to back down. They came out with a statement saying that Jorge's commitment to activism and social principles uh, were at the forefront and that his capabilities as a candidate for this academic position should not be judged by by his cultural or religious identity. So Jorge was finally elected. He received the vocal support. And this was so important because it shows how in a democratic Chile, There is no room for this kind of discrimination and hatred. But unfortunately, what this incitement, this this incident showed again is that there are dangers that are posed by intolerance and prejudice. It's so gratifying to hear that his fellow students stood by him in the face of these attacks. You know, in in America, we talk so much about the BDS movement, these votes to boycott, divest and sanction Israel that happen on American college campuses. Is that something that's happening on Chilean college campuses as well? Yes. The divestment and sanctions movement, the BDS, is more subtly anchored in Chile than anywhere else in Latin America. Just to give you an example, last week, humanity students at Chile's largest public university, the same university where um, Jorge studies, Universidad de Chile, they boycotted, they supported this academic boycott of Israel. There were about 80% of voters in the Department of Philosophy and Humanities at Universidad de Chile that call for the severance of ties with Tel Aviv University and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And this is just one example, the most recent. But you've had academics coming, archaeologists coming as guests of the Embassy of Israel that have had to cancel presentations at certain universities because the universities didn't feel that they could control students and they would rather avoid the presentation than to have disturbances on their campuses. Wow, that is really disheartening. What is the Chilean government doing to combat this kind of of anti-Semitism? We know that there was a meeting with the Jewish Chilean leadership, but we feel that there needs to be more. There needs to be a vocal presence of the government asking 
the civil society asking the Palestinian Federation and the Federation of Palestinian Students to tone it down, that this is about having a positive message out that allows for everybody to be able to support whatever it is, either in terms of faith or it is in terms of of what they support the state of Israel, without feeling the threat that by doing so, they might be risking um, either being admonished or being castigated in one way or another. So we feel, and this is something that we're doing, we have put out an action alert where we are sending President Piñera a letter asking him to, from the top down, be able to send this message that this is not right, that this is eroding Chile's democracy, and it's eroding the ability of uh, Chilean citizens to freely express their allegiances and their positions, whatever it is, without having to have their opinions questioned or, or, or have these opinions put them at risk. And what can our listeners do if they want to show their support for Chile's Jewish community? Go to our website, go to ajc.org, go to Action Alert. You're going to see there, if you want more information about what's going on, there is a blog about five things you need to know about uh, Chile and the anti-Semitism situation. Go read, get informed. If you agree, please sign the letter. This is a letter that we want to hand deliver in the next few weeks to someone high in the Chilean government and make sure that this is something that is addressed by the highest levels from the president. We understand that this is something that the president of Chile needs to take action on. Get informed, take action, use our voices as American Jews to support the Jewish communities around the world that need our help. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Philip Roth. Good for the Jews? At the beginning of his literary career, the answer was obvious. No, no way. This writer of smut with his libidinous protagonists casting all Jewish men as lustful, sex-obsessed cretins couldn't possibly be good for the Jews. And indeed, he was shouted down at Yeshiva University in 1962, and a decade later, the scholar Gershon Shalom said that Roth's novel Portnoy's Complaint was more harmful to the reputation of Jews than that notorious anti-Semitic pamphlet, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. By the time he died this week at age 85, the answer was no less obvious. Of course, Philip Roth was good for the Jews. After the debacle at Yeshiva University in the 60s, Roth resolved never to write about American Jews again. But he couldn't help himself. Throughout his career, he was inexorably drawn to write about the American Jewish condition, to bring our concerns to life, to take on our neuroses. 
This week, the chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary, Dr. Arnie Eisen, called Roth the greatest sociologist on American Jewish life without doubt. And that means an awful lot, considering Chancellor Eisen himself ranks among the greatest sociologists on American Jewish life. Philip Roth was awarded the National Book Award twice. He twice won the National Book Critics Circle Award. He won three Penn Faulkner Awards. He won a Pulitzer Prize. He won the Man Booker International Prize. In 2011, he received the National Humanities Medal from President Obama. That he never won the Nobel Prize for Literature perhaps says more about the folks in Stockholm than it does about Roth's writing. Perhaps the greatest award, at least as far as poetic symmetry is concerned, came in 2014 in Roth's last public appearance. That year, the Jewish Theological Seminary conferred an honorary degree on Philip Roth, the man who, early in his career, was jeered out of one Jewish seminary, closed his career by receiving the highest honor of another. In other words, the Jewish community had finally agreed that Philip Roth was good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at Passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.